Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. Today I want to talk to you about purposed for greater works. Purposed for greater works from John chapter 14. You know, most weeks I aim for the sermon to speak to as many people as possible. That seems like it would be natural, right? And, and in some sense, that's always true. But as we move through John's gospel progressively, specifically from chapter 13 forward, the message that John is writing holds an increasing meaning and application for Christ followers. Now, I don't mean by this that those who are not Christians, who are unbelievers, cannot benefit or gain from this. As a matter of fact, you can benefit greatly because as you look on to Christianity, and I would say probably by your presence here, you are even to some extent considering what it means to become a Christian. What you get to see is you get to see the way that Jesus Christ, God himself, relates to his followers. And so I think that's a good thing to see. You get see the inside before you believe yourself. But I would encourage you not to stay there, uh, to see the way that the Lord leads and to receive him. But for the Christ follower, this holds a very pointed aim for our lives. You see, John's gospel is uncomfortable for Christians who just want to believe, trust, and follow half-heartedly. just not really any application of half-hearted Christianity in the scriptures. And that's what we look at today. Go to John chapter 14 with me, verse 1, as we look at purposed for greater works today. Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. That where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. I'm going to pause there. But of course, we ask the Lord to bless the reading, the hearing, the understanding, and the obeying of his word today. Let me just give you some context as to where we're at in this passage of Scripture. There's a great conflict that has arisen mostly within the disciples But as they sat around the Lord's table and as they're preparing for the celebration of Passover, some very tentious moments have recently occurred for Judas has just been dismissed by Jesus and he'll go and he'll receive his silver for selling out Jesus and becoming the one 
who would betray the Lord Jesus. And Jesus told them at the table, one of you are going to betray me before that happened. But when Judas left, because of the way he left, they weren't weren't sure or confident that it was him. And they were so kind of distracted by other things that, that his leaving didn't really put the label on him. But not much longer in that conversation, a situation arose with Peter and Jesus. Where Jesus says to Peter, before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. And what it looked like in that moment was that Peter, who was the leader of the twelve, was going to be the one who would betray Jesus. Now nobody said that, but that's what seemed most obvious at the moment. And so that's where we pick up here. And, and, and when the tension and the angst reaches its apex, what happens is Jesus gets right to the heart of the matter and, and he speaks to comfort the disciples, to, to not let them get distracted by chaos or confusion or, or argumentation, but he instructs them and he directs them in this moment with these leading words. What he's doing is he's wanting them to understand everything that's taking place because remember, they don't know about the crucifixion yet. They don't have the advantage that we have to look back on events and to understand them in light of what Jesus said. But he's teaching them now for all that they will know when those times come. And that time is very, very near. Friends, I just pause here to remind us of this. Remember this, that the more life gets out of control That the more that the unknown of this world threatens or seems to threaten, that the more confusing that the situation becomes or the situations of your life, that the heavier your burdens and your concerns weigh upon you and the stronger your fears and your anxieties. Always remember this. As Jesus instructs and directs the disciples, all of those are simply reminders to give more intentional focus on Jesus himself, to hear him speak. And here's what he'll say. Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. I believe today's message will help with this focus on Jesus. Here's what I want you to understand today. The Christian life is purposed by God for greater works of glory for all who believe in Jesus. Jesus is leaving, but he's not leaving his disciples. And he wants them to keep going. He's taught them and he's trained them to prepare for this moment. But they didn't understand the full gravity of the moment. And what he's taught and prepared them to do is to keep going. And what he's going to show them is that what you believe about Jesus is most fully demonstrated by how it is that you live your life, friends. That what you know to be true of him are truths that anchor your life so that you can apply them in a way to keep following him no matter what what happens in life. I want us to see four truths today that Jesus gives to us 
that can principle our life to move forward in following Jesus, bringing glory to God for greater works in the world. And the first truth that we see, we've already read, verse 1, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. Don't separate those two sentences, friends. Don't separate those two sentences. Because the one is vain comfort, the other is cold truth. Make sure they stay together. The first truth I want you to see is that Jesus guards our heart with eternal hope. With eternal hope. There is a traitor among the disciples and it seems to be their leader. That's the moment we find ourselves in. And the tension has climaxed and Jesus moves right to the heart of the matter. And what is the heart of the matter? The heart of his followers. The heart of his followers is always the heart of the matter with Jesus. He comforts and he assures the disciples by teaching them that he is God and he is doing God's work. That's what he's saying to them. He comforts them by speaking of his crucifixion in such a way, such to tell them, I am preparing a place for you. And if I'm preparing a place Don't you know I will come and get you and take you to be with me? Friends, nothing builds trust in a relationship like promises made and fulfilled, right? Promise made can be sweet, but man, when it gets fulfilled, it's not just sweet, it's intimate, right? And that's what Jesus is doing. He's teaching them to listen to his word that they might live in relationship with him. And and what does Jesus tell him that he'll do once he's gone? I'll send the Holy Comforter to you. And what will the, the role of the Holy Comforter, the Holy Counselor, the Holy Spirit of God be? To remind you of everything that I have taught to you. The very thing that I am teaching you and training you to do right now that you will trust me. Friends, life is held by this anchored stability when we live in Jesus and his truth. That all Jesus has done to prepare a place for us gives certainty and gives assurance that he will come get us. That is an anchor that stabilizes for eternity. You see, friends, heart matters always create the biggest issues in life, do they not? No matter what form they may take, heart matters always create the biggest issues in life. Jesus knew this, and that's why he comforts. And he comforts them with this phrase. And that's why I say never separate these two. Because Jesus comforts with this truth. What you know to be true of God should rule what you allow to take place in your heart. Let the truths of God rule your heart, not the prevailing sentiment or situation in which you find your life. Jesus is God. Once we know that, Once we settle that, there's not a whole lot else we even need to concern ourselves with, let alone let it trouble our hearts. Why? Because Jesus is God. 
He's got a place for us. He's coming to get us. Today is a good day. This, friends, is that prevailing reality. All that they know to be true of God is true in Jesus. And we've talked about the challenge that they must have experienced of, yes, he's a great guy. I mean, we've seen him raise the dead. We've seen him heal people. He taught in such a way that nobody else has ever taught. But God, ah, that just seems like a leap, right? And so Jesus is bringing them to understand about him what will anchor them in their life. And what he's telling them here is this fundamental truth is the anchor and the guardian of the heart. For Jesus guards the believer's heart by his eternal hope because it's the way that he will source our life. That's what the covenant that we have in salvation through Jesus Christ does, that we're given a new heart when we believe in Jesus and repent of our sins and confess that he is God and receive the forgiveness, the cleansing, and the new life that he gives to us. And he wants us to understand that our life is not determined by what we accomplish for him, but rather by what he is doing in us. He wants us to live from our heart. And so he's giving us all that we need to guard it. This truth, believe in God, believe also in me. Why? Not because they're two separate things and you've got to embrace them both. But if you know God, you know Jesus. And if you know Jesus, you know God. And it doesn't matter who else you know, what else you know, or how much else you accumulate. This will not be true without them being together. And this is the eternal comfort of the heart. This truth is the prevailing reality for the Christian to guard their heart as the source of life. And Proverbs 4.23 tells us, above all else, above everything else, with vigilance, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. For the Christian, nothing should thwart us because nothing can thwart God's plan in Jesus, Christian. Christians hold an eternal hope in Jesus that gives a divine perspective to anchor our immediate reality. No matter what takes place around us, with God in us, we have a perspective that anchors us regardless of what is brewing around us. Let me ask you this, friends. What troubles your heart? Have you thought about this? What what is it that troubles your heart in this life? Because losing our way with God always begins by losing our heart. It always begins there. For a Christian, heart trouble arises in two ways. The first way is that we allow our heart to get set on something other than Jesus. Sometimes we do this intentionally. We pursue things that, by the conviction of the Spirit, we know we shouldn't be after that, but man, we want it. And what happens is we let it fill our heart, and we just keep running after it. We keep making excuses and offering rationales and keep going after it. And we realize, man, it's got a lot more real estate in the old heart than I ever thought it would ever occupy. But it's provided a lot less satisfaction 
than I thought it would be able to give. We set our heart on something other than Jesus. That's why false teaching and false promises allure the heart and are so dangerous for us. Why? Because at at first glance, we think, oh, what's the big problem with this? What's What's the deal? I don't understand. Because it allures the heart. Pulls us in little by little. The second way we lose heart is we just live in disobedience to Jesus. Sometimes we do this by commission or what I call active disobedience. Doing those things that we know we shouldn't be doing, that the Spirit of God has spoken to us about, the Word of God is clear to us on, but we find a way to ignore it, to deny it, to do an in run around it and justify it in our heart and our mind. And then we wonder why we feel condemned over it. But the other way is not only through active disobedience or acts of commission, but also acts of omission, passive disobedience. I'll get to that later. Some other time. I'm busy right now. You see, Jesus points to the eternal hope that we have in him as the heart's guard from the world's trouble. So that our heart will stay strong with his eternal life in order to serve his kingdom's purposes and he comforts all of our troubles when we believe in him let not your heart be troubled he doesn't qualify that with the kinds of things that will not be able to trouble our heart it just covers everything you see friends believing in Jesus is not a response to his comfort in our life it's not a response to the removal of heart trouble but rather it is the means through which that heart trouble is experienced or that heart comfort is experienced in our life. Romans chapter 4 verse 18 reminds us of Abraham and maybe you're familiar with the story. Dude was 90 years old. I don't know if they technically used the word dude back in that day, but he would have liked it, I'm confident. And God made him a promise. Of all the things he could have promised Abraham at age of 90, God chose this. You're going to have a baby. Your wife, excuse me, is going to have a baby. In this day and time, it's important that I clarify that. And then it took another 10 years to fulfill it. You know what Paul, looking back on the life of Abraham, says of him? Against all hope, Romans chapter 4, verse 18. Against all hope. Do you know what that prepositional phrase does? It defines the context of the situation and the circumstances of Abraham's life when God spoke to him. There wasn't anything in this world, biologically, physically, or any other reality in this world that said what I've said to you can be a reality for you. Against all hope, there wasn't any inkling of hope in the world. And then he says this, comma, Abraham in hope believed. Where did that second hope come from? It didn't come from the world, it came from above. 
It's the hope that Jesus is purporting here when he says, let not your heart be troubled. Eternally hope, friends, makes us eternally strong because Jesus has prepared and he has secured our eternity. We need not be troubled by the temporary reality that seems to threaten us today for the Christian's hope of heaven with Jesus is the heart's guardian in the world regardless of what happens. The first truth, friends, that principles your life is this. Jesus guards the heart of those who believe in him with an eternal hope that will not perish, will not fade, will not spoil, will not be overcome. The second truth I want you to see today to principle your life by deals with this, the reality that doubts and questions yet persist in our life. Verse 5, Thomas shows up. Welcome, Thomas. Thank you for representing the vast majority of us, if not the whole of us. What happens when Thomas shows up? A doubt seems to appear, right? And that's exactly what Thomas purports. The second truth I want you to see is that Jesus guides our life by inviting us to follow him. We see this through Thomas's question that Jesus is guiding us by inviting us to follow him. You see, what Thomas wants is clear direction. That's not wrong, is it? How many of you have ever prayed for clear direction from God? I pray for it daily, weekly. God help me. Right? And too often I may pray for it the way Thomas did here. Thomas is the premier doubter, but he holds the sentiment of the, all the disciples. He wanted to know the plan and the direction. He wanted to see the roadmap so he could drop a pin and engineer a way to get there. Right? That's what Thomas wanted to do. He's looking for direction. Jesus directs him to a relationship. See this here, Jesus responds in verse 6 with the sixth of his I am statements in the Gospel of John. When he says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. And no man cometh unto the Father except through me. Jesus affirms not only is he God but he is the only way to God. Notice this, friends, that in verses 1 through 4, Jesus says, I am God. In verses 5 through 7, he says, I am the only way to God. Whatever doubt and speculation might have simmered in Thomas's heart, Jesus is addressing that. Now, that word way is not so much a direction but rather it's a means of forward movement. It's a means of continuing, of persevering against hardship, of enduring. And it's the principal word that kind of consumes the truth and the life. Not that it's more important or of more value, but the point is that Jesus is making is that he will continue to follow him as he looks to him. The disciples will continue to follow him as they continue to look to him, and he clarifies because I am the only way, I'm the only means to God. Think of a time for a moment of extreme duress in your life. Think of a moment when you didn't know what was going to happen, you didn't know what the outcome was going to be, you didn't know who to believe, you didn't know how to prepare, you didn't know what to do or to believe. 
it seemed as if everything was collapsing because in this moment, the world was collapsing for the disciples. Their leader was leaving, but he had said, you can't follow me. They were alone. They were destitute. They were isolated. They were vulnerable, and they were threatened. And Thomas's question reminds us, friends, that in our life, Jesus is not a finish line to cross. He's not a project to accomplish. He's not a goal to achieve, but he is a relationship in which we live. For Jesus is the means to life with God. To know Jesus is to know God. And this is so important for us in this second truth and how it is that he is guiding us to follow along after God. For Jesus is the Christian's way to and the Christian's way of life with God. Knowing what to do is always found in Jesus, in the work that he did, in the the life that he lived, but most explicitly for us, in the teachings that he gave to us that are contained in the word of God. But it's often not in the way that we try to use them. As Jesus stood before the disciples and Thomas said, "Just just tell us where to go and how to get there. And we'll take care of it. And that's the very, the very thing that Jesus was trying to confront. You see, Jesus is always the right direction to God. But too often we want to use him just as directions to be given. And not God who will lead us. It's been said that when Jesus is all you have, you'll find that he's enough. And we love to quote John chapter 14, verse 6. It says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man cometh unto the Father but by me. But, but we fear finding ourselves in a situation where that's really all we've got to hang on to. And in that moment, will the word of God be enough for the people of God? Will the promise of God sustain us And what Jesus has already answered and addressed is the questions that that calm our fears and calm our anxiety, that assures our doubt and teaches us to look to him. Don't stop looking to Jesus. Jesus is teaching the truth that provides this principle for your life in living for him and serving him and in living on his mission that when the heart is troubled by life's demand, When the heart is troubled by missions demand, we trust in Jesus to move forward in his comfort for us. He's inviting us. Come on. I know where we're going. I know how to get there. And I know everything that's going to happen along the way. But I don't. So what are you going to do about that, Jesus? Here's what I'll do. Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Okay. Friends, Jesus guides our life by inviting us to follow him. So in that very moment, verse 8, Philip tries to calm the tension. Oh, he's probably a middle child. Got to make peace with everybody, right? He offers a concession. Look at this, verse 8. Philip said to him, Lord, just show us the Father and it's enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? 
the words that I say to you. I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Lord, just show us the Father. That'll be enough. It sounds so humble and simple of a request, does it not? But this is the very truth that Jesus is trying to teach them, and they're missing. Here's the third truth that principles our life for greater works of glory. Jesus gratifies our deepest longing by bringing us into a personal relationship with God. Friends, he's already told us, he tells us repeatedly, Jesus is God. All we know of God is fully revealed and displayed in Jesus. We learn that Jesus is the means to God from Thomas's question. And now in Philip's concession, we learn that Jesus is also the end for which we were created. Jesus is not only our means to God, he is our end as God. Jesus is not simply an experience with God. When you believe in Jesus, you have all of God. The disciples couldn't have understood because Jesus had not yet been crucified. Let's be gracious to them so that we can understand what they were confronted by. But Jesus was teaching truths that would be future true. We get to look on those truths backwards to see the actuality of their truth. And so they couldn't have understood. And he's teaching them all that they'll need to know once he's crucified and, and then resurrected. But friends, Jesus is our direction to get to God. But hear me, he is also our destination. He is the God that we get. It's not get Jesus and then through him get something more. And, and this is so often how we, we, we do the same thing that, that Thomas and now Philip have done here. Philip Cinnamon is so common with us today. We want a deeper experience with God. Jesus, give me something more. And, and we see him as a means to an end. And he is the means. Don't get me wrong. He's the way to God. But he is the God we get. He is the end that we receive in Christ as well. When we fail to believe in Jesus for who he really is, that he is all of God, what happens is we begin to clamor for more in our life. We clamor for more of God when we come to offer too little of our lives and Jesus is worthy of so much more. We go, oh Lord, I've given you this, but you know, I just don't feel like you've come through on your part of the bargain. And we begin to clamor with him because we want to offer what we've given as in some way over and above and better, more worthy than what he's given to us. We see Jesus as a spiritual experience. We see Jesus as, a, as an elitist or an enlightened intellect or as a stronger will to be able to do in us. You just tell me where we're going. I'll figure out how to get there. You tell me the good of what happens when we arrive and I'll figure out the good for me once we arrive. 
We clamor for more of God when we come into worship and desire to be more entertained and to be more impressed or even more seen than more entered into the presence of God himself. When we want to get something from church instead of bring ourselves to the one who makes us the church. We clamor for more of God when we walk into community group and we want the group to serve our needs. Listen, it's been a hard week this week. So now shut up and listen. When I'm done, we can be dismissed. Right? You're like, whoa, isn't that what you do every week, Pastor? No, I'll let you sing too. We clamor for more of God when we We pray, maybe for the first time in weeks or months, we pray about our need. God, I need this from you. I'm coming to you. I'm I'm looking to you. If you just show up and be God, then this whole thing would work. But we get upset before God, uh, we get upset because God, God doesn't answer our prayer before we even open our eyes. That's clamoring. We clamor for more of God when we can't get all that we want even though it seems others have all of it readily available. And God, did you see what I gave to you? We ask, yes, Jesus, yes. But when do we get God? I'm so thankful you're here with us, Jesus. You you make everything better. When do we get God? When do we get his promise? When do we get it fulfilled? When do we get our questions answered? When do we get our needs met? When do we get our emotions satisfied? When do we get our pleasures fulfilled? When do we get God? When will he show up for me? And Philip just made it sound so nice at the beginning. But that's what he's doing. We clamor when we allow the discontentment that is simmering in us to occupy, to guide, and to rule our heart in this world. Friends, the most frustrating relationship of all is the one that you're half-hearted about. We get busy trying to do everything, even doing so much for God, but without being with Him. With Him. Might I dare to tell you this is the purpose of His divine plan. How do we know that? Because in the Garden of Eden, he just came to hang out in the evenings with Adam and Eve. What'd they do? Have no idea. I'm convinced they did not play board games. That comes in Genesis 3. All the problems show up. He just came to be with them. We don't grow weary of Jesus because he fails to satisfy, but because we fail to honor him in our hearts as he is worthy to be praised, because we fail to set him aside as Lord of all. The Christian life disappoints not because we've lived large and found Jesus to be too little, but because we live in a way, we live in a strength, we live in a wisdom that can only do what we can do. And friends, Jesus is never enough when we seek to gain all that the world offers, or even some of it, tacked on as an appendage to him. 
when we look to validate ourselves by the world's values and the world's standards, when we pursue a glory with our lives that's counter to God's way and will for our lives, we want God to give us an answer or whatever it is that we seek more than we want God to be the answer. And too little glory and satisfaction in life is always a result of too little Jesus in life. We experience little of God in our life only when we believe little in Jesus for our life. He's the means to life. He is the fullness, the end of life, the all of life. We experience little of God in our life only when we believe little in Jesus for life and we always miss Jesus when we look for him to be something for us instead of looking to him as our life this third truth reminds us that Jesus alone gratifies the deepest longing by bringing us into a personal relationship with God Thomas wanted direction Philip wanted a destination. Jesus gave them both. And when Jesus becomes our all in all, worthy of our all, we live differently, friends. We live differently. That's why the truth of his word becomes a principle for this life. Because I want the way I live to be absolutely true to the one who lives in me. And that's where we get the fourth truth. Verse 12, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. I told you it gets dangerous. Jesus purposes life for greater works of glory as we serve his kingdom mission. That's the fourth truth that principles our life. Jesus' words are almost unbelievable, friends. Those who believe in him will do greater works. Man, I'm not going to lie to you. To hear that and, 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 and to at first think, okay, yeah, I, I, my first reaction is that, but not greater works than Jesus Friends, I want you to understand what Jesus is saying here, and I need you to think less in comparative terms, more in cumulative terms. Jesus is on his throne, and he's working God's redemptive purposes in the world. To believe in Jesus is to do his work on earth. The more you believe, the more you'll do. Jesus invites his followers to live as large in the world as he lives in us. That's what he's inviting us into. I want you to understand how it is that Jesus purposes life for greater glory by three very simple, and I'll have to move quickly through these principles. But here goes. The first principle of how Jesus has purposed your life for greater glory, to do greater works, is this, that ministry and serving God's kingdom flows out of personal relationship with Jesus. Let's just bring this to a point of what we've already learned and establish it 
as a starting point for our lives. Hear me, friends, because you're missing this. And when you miss this, you're living out of something other than your heart where God intends you to live. The work of God in you through Jesus Christ is the work that God wants to do through you in the world. This ain't about, I'm going to go live my life for Christ and then I'll go do something great for him. That is impossible. And that's nothing like what Jesus is calling us to here. What Jesus is calling us to here is this. What God is doing in you is what God wants to do through you in the world. Now, our hearts get a little more troubled because we fail to see how Jesus is not only our healer and redeemer, but that he is our Lord to lead us. A personal relationship is how we know God, and it is the way that Jesus works through us in the world. It's not something other than. Even in kingdom work, Jesus draws us into deeper intimacy and knowledge of God that he might accomplish his purposes in the world. Listen, God just doesn't want to use you up and push you to the side. He created you to know you, and know you means a personal relationship with you. And everything that he has divinely, sovereignly ordained to do through your life will be because he works in your life. What Jesus is doing in your life is the means through which he works through your life. You know what you call that? Intimacy. Rest assured, God's not more concerned about what he can get out of you than he is about what he can do in you and for you. That is a lie from Satan. Crush it right where it starts. God is not more interested in using you and creating trash out of you so he can get something for himself. God cares deeply and intimately for you and he wants to work in you for greater intimacy with himself. What Jesus is doing in your life is the means through which he works through your life. That's intimacy, but listen to this. What Jesus is doing through your life is the end to which he is working in your life. You know what you call that? Glory. Glory always comes from intimacy. Glory always comes from intimacy. Friends, there's not a moment, there's not a situation, there's not a decision you've made, there's not a relationship that you've had, an acquaintanceship that you've made, there's nothing in your life that is wasted, that is, is inconsequential when you are living in God's kingdom plan. Because what he's doing in you is what he wants to do through you. And what he is doing through you is the very end to work, which he is working in you. The second principle is this. Got to hurry because the third's the longest. <laughs> The work we do for God's kingdom in this world is directly proportionate to the extent to which we believe in Jesus. The way God does greater things through us is when we believe him to do greater things in us. 
How does this work? It's the principle of, of John the Baptist. He must increase. I must decrease. We can do nothing for God without having God's work for us through Jesus first working in us. Christian, you serve God's kingdom work as his kingdom work works in you. And friends, deep hurts and wounds can make powerful testimonies, but only if you believe Jesus to redeem them in you. Most painful times of life form the most powerful opportunities of ministry. And you, hear me, this is critical. You may be convinced that your life's just not all that important for God's kingdom. Friends, that's of Satan. Rooted in the depth of hell itself, it is a deception and a lie. Do not buy it, crush it. You may believe that God's work is not all that big in you. Do the same thing with that. Here's another one for that category. You may believe that no one could be moved to believe in Jesus by how it is that God has worked in you. Again, that's a lie and a deception. It is counter to the will of God for you. Do not entertain it for a moment. This can only be true. These can only be true when you give Satan more real estate in your heart than you're giving to Jesus. The biggest threat to your faithfulness is not the opposition that you encounter in your life but the trouble that inhabits your heart. And the more Jesus fills your life to guard your heart's troubles, the more released you will be to serve without a reservation and without a hesitation. All right, third principle, how do we serve? What do we got to do, pastor? Better put your seatbelt on. Prayer. I told you it was hard. It's the first and greatest work of the Christian. I don't mean first in order, I mean in priority. I return to the phrase we used last year. Prayer forms the first act of love and the first labor of mission for the Christian. Prayer enables us to completely love a person before we ever speak to them, before we ever know them or know of them. Prayer is the highest honor of the Christian on the face of this earth because when we pray we sync with the triune God and what he is doing to work out his redemptive purposes in the world. When we pray, the Spirit of God that inhabits us begins to resonate with our heart, bringing the will of God to us. And he speaks as the Holy Spirit to God the Son who sits at the right hand of the Father who is eternally interceding for us. And he speaks into the Father's ear the very words perfectly, not even the way they came out of our mouth, but perfectly to understand. And you know what God says? Yes, that's the greatest thing I've heard today. My answer to that is yes, 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 yes. And he sends the message back down to encourage our heart. I'm telling you, we enter this flow of divine intercession when we pray to accomplish God's work and to multiply his glory on the face of the earth. Would you imagine the transformative power that would be unleashed on this earth if Christ followers simply believe this statement ask me anything and I'll do it if you could pray one thing this week what would it be pray it pray it and don't stop until God answers. When your heart becomes troubled in the prayer of it, don't stop praying it. 
take comfort in Jesus. They go, wait a minute, heart trouble, that's not coming from God. What's that coming from? Spirit convicts you of sin, repent, turn around and keep praying. Do not stop praying. You see, that prayer might not be the point. What that prayer brings might be the very point. But I can tell you this, because what God's doing in you is what he wants to do through you, and what he's doing through you is the way he's going to work in you, intimacy and glory. If you'll keep praying, God will keep working. And what God does in you will be greater than you could have ever imagined. And what God does through you will be far more than you ever dared to imagine. Let's pray.